0: welcome to another great message by pastor adrian wright lead pastor at anchor church we pray this message will encourage inspire and transform your life our heart is to share the hope of jesus with our city and nation hey everybody welcome to part five of the finding faith series This has been such a great journey. We hope that you've been enjoying it with us. You can go back and listen to any of the other parts. It's on our YouTube channel. If you wanna catch up, if you wanna just listen to it again, soak in it and seek to understand, we are on a journey together and uh, we love that we get to have the conversation. Today, I wanna talk to you about the nature of God. Is God evil? Is He mean? Is He unkind? Uh, Is He uh, genocidal? Is He racist? These are some of the accusations that have been brought against God, specifically those that have read the Old Testament and often taken things out of context and misunderstood certain things that I'm gonna hopefully cover with you today. But I remember in the good old days of Twitter, I don't know how many of you remember Twitter, Twitter was a thing back in the day that you used to go and see microblogging as people gave updates about whatever. And, um, and so obviously Twitter does still exist, but uh, very few people use it. But I remember on Twitter uh, long ago tweeting something about God and somebody responded to me by saying that taking advice from the Bible is like taking advice from a serial killer. And this is the accusation or the objection that we want to look at today. The criticism, the critique um, of God. And just so that you know, Christians often get emotional about those kinds of things. And I understand that if you love somebody, then you'll get offended or you'll get Uh, You know, it'll affect you when people start talking negatively about something or somebody that you love. And uh, we love God. We know that he loves us. And so it is an emotional subject for us. But one of the things that I think it's important for Christians to understand is that we're not threatened by the lack of faith of others. In fact, it's the people that don't have faith that are threatened by our faith. And that's why they have to try and make such strong arguments to try and help themselves uh, stave off the the fear that they feel that maybe there truly is a God maybe he actually does care about my life maybe there is meaning and purpose and so in an effort to squish or, or, or uh, suppress that feeling um, that is where this rhetoric gets more and more offensive and as Christians I think it's important for us to take a measured approach uh, in how we respond Because the lack of faith in others doesn't affect our faith. Robert A. Wilson said, The Bible tells us to be like God. And then on page after page, it describes God as a mass murderer. Thomas Paine said, Whenever we read the obscene stories, the voluptuous debaucheries, the cruel and torturous executions, the unrelenting vindictiveness with which more than half the Bible is filled, it would be more consistent that we called it the work of a demon than the word of God. Of God if God is a loving God why is the Bible full of violence genocide destruction plagues slavery sacrifice and death not only recorded as done by people but like with the plagues often brought about by God or sent by God why would God send people to hell to be tortured for eternity This is another one of those objections that we wrestle with, the objection being a loving God wouldn't murder innocent people or torture them in hell. And that is maybe something that you've wondered about or had somebody raise the question with you. What is the nature of God, therefore? Is he good or is he malevolent and angry? Is he gracious and loving or does he want to cause harm? And we're gonna look at one very important principle and then three misunderstandings in answering this question today. The principle that I wanna to want to mention or wanna begin with is the principle of God's sovereignty. Now, God is sovereign because he is the creator of all things. He's the source and the giver of moral law. The ultimate authority on morality is the throne of God. It is God himself. Honestly, this is a difficult concept for us to truly grasp because we see everything through our own finite understanding and perspective. So it's difficult for us to conceive that the way that we would reason about morality wouldn't also automatically be the way that God reasons in every circumstance or on every occasion. It's difficult to wrap our head around. It's kind of like saying God exists outside of time. When my kids have asked me the question, Dad, who created God? Where did God come from? I said, God is uncreated. He's always existed because he exists outside of time. So he has no beginning or end. And they would look at me with these wide eyes, going, Okay, Dad, because they can't understand. Our minds, our finite understanding, is difficult to grasp, makes it difficult to grasp these eternal concepts. What does it mean when we say that God is sovereign in simple terms? It means that he's in control of all things and that ultimately all things are serving his purpose. I say ultimately because penultimately we have a scope of free will. And so we choose right and wrong. We choose what we do. We make choices in life. And sometimes we choose things that God didn't want or cause, but because He is ultimately sovereign, He works those things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose and also to serve His purpose. We do have free will as people. We can make choices. However, God has given everything on earth a scope of free will with which exists within his ultimate sovereignty. This is kind of like when my, when my boys were toddlers and, uh, and I created a play pen or a play area for them. Within that scope, they could play as they wished, but I still owned the house. We see a good example of this in the story of Jonah in the Old Testament. Jonah is called by God to preach the gospel to the Assyrians. Now the Assyrians uh, were a a violent race of people that often caused Israel harm. And this is not something that Jonah is keen for. And so he decides that instead of obeying God, he's going to run in the opposite direction. This is not God's will for Jonah. He made a decision to run away. But God redeems even the poor decision that Jonah made. First of all, Jonah gets thrown overboard and then God intervenes saving him ultimately from drowning through being swallowed by a great fish. This fish then spits Jonah out on a beach right in the area of Assyria. And guess what God the Assyrians worshipped as their main deity? It was Dagon or the fish God. So even in that instance, God makes Jonah's message more powerful to the Assyrians because the preacher was delivered by a fish which they worship and so he walks into Assyria he preaches the shortest message in all of history and everyone in that city 100,000 people repent. In Jonah chapter 4 we see Jonah's response to the repentance of the Ninevites these people that lived in Assyria and it's not what we may have thought instead of rejoicing at the fact that a nation has turned to God Jonah is angry with God He's actually angry with God because he had mercy on the Assyrians. You see, sometimes it's the grace of God that angers us far more than his judgment. We want some people to be punished. Jonah wanted the Assyrians to pay for what they had done. They were cruel and they were savage and they hounded Israel. And then God tells Jonah to go and preach to them. And Jonah didn't want this. One, because they were so violent, but two, because he didn't really want them to be saved. And so Jonah is angry with God for having mercy on them. God then comes to Jonah in his anger and asks him the question. And this is a very important question for us to ask ourselves when we judge the morality of God from our own perspective. God asks Jonah this question. He says, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah, is this right for you? To make yourself the, the authority on morality? Let's look at this in Jonah chapter 4. It says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled, or I fled previously to Tarshish. In other words, Jonah actually says that the reason why he, he fled was because he didn't want the Ninevites to have the opportunity to turn to God. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. This is pretty dramatic from Jonah at this point. It is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade, till he might see what might become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade for his head, to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned, the next day God prepared a worm. God is sovereign. And it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose, that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Then God said to Jonah one more time, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, It is right for me to be angry, even to death. But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right and their left and much livestock. God even cares about the animals. So Jonah is upset that God didn't destroy Nineveh and upset that he destroyed the plant. God says, you're upset about the plant that you didn't even create. I created all things. So I get to have mercy upon whomever I will have mercy and I get to destroy that which I will destroy. Why does God say this? Well, because he is sovereign. If you created something, you also have the right to remove what you have created. I remember when I had some trees in my backyard in a complex that I lived, And some of these trees were getting a little bit close to the electrical fence that we had around the complex. And so the neighbor said what she would do, and she was the head of the body corporate, was just jump over the wall and cut down my trees. And I was livid and I warned her in the strongest terms, you do not set foot on my property or touch my trees. They are not your trees, they are my trees. In other words, because I planted them, I could remove them if I so wished, but somebody else couldn't come and remove my trees. So we must be careful of telling God what is right and wrong. As Paul says in Romans 9, shall the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? God is not judged by human standards because God is not a mere human like we are. He is the sovereign creator of the universe. But he reveals himself, his own self-revelation in Exodus. And as Jonah even reiterates here, is that he is gracious and kind, slow to anger, and abundant in mercy. He is loving in steadfast. His steadfast love endures throughout the generations. This is who he is. God has never done a single unjust thing. So that's the principle, the important principle when dealing with this topic. There's three misunderstandings that I want to run through quickly. The first one is that is the the misunderstanding of God's creation. The atheist website, evilbible.com, says the people slaughtered in the Old Testament were almost uniformly blameless, with a few exceptions, of course, for instance, the Sodomites who violated the conventions of hospitality. (laughs) Um, That's what they put it down to. Clearly, they haven't truly read the Bible. This is a misunderstanding of the state of humankind. Psalm 51 verse 5 says that we're born into sin, that we have all committed sin. Romans 3 tells us there's no one righteous, no, not one. Everybody has the poison of asps in their tongues. We rebel, we are greedy, we are lustful, we are we're judgmental, we're, we're, you know, there's so many things. How many more labels can we give? This is humanity. This is what the human heart has within it. And so God is just in his judgment. In fact, if God showed up and executed judgment on all of the world in one moment, that would be just. It would be right. It would be good. It would be true. Because he is a just judge. And God, as the creator, has the right to judge. God does not and has not, however, ever acted in injustice or as an unjust, uh, taken any unjust action. Nineveh, for example, that we've covered here, the Assyrians, were barbaric and cruel. Archaeologists uncovered, uh, you know, some of the artifacts and things that they uncovered had to be filtered as it came through to the public. There was evidence of extreme brutality. They would, for example, slowly impale victims by sliding them down a sharpened pole. They would make bags and wallpaper from human skin. One stone pillar uncovered in Nineveh read, Nobles I flayed. Three thousand captives I burned with fire. I left not one hostage alive. I cut off the hands and feet of some. I cut off the noses, ears and fingers of others. The eyes of numerous soldiers I put out. Maidens I burned as a holocaust. Uniformly blameless? And these were the people that God showed grace to. He didn't judge them even though they committed these kinds of atrocities. We hear about Jericho and how Jericho was this innocent city that as the Israelites entered the promised land, you know, God raised to the ground. And they say, oh, the poor, the poor people of Jericho, their only crime was to be in the way. Well, if you read the history of the people of Jericho, they actually had a sun god called Molech and Molech was worshipped and they had a massive bronze statue that was made that they would worship as this idol representing the god Molech. And what they would do when it was time for the harvest, in order to appease the sun god, they would warm up the bronze hands of the statue and then place newborn babies alive in those hands so that they would be burned to death as a sacrifice. Sometimes they would even abort unborn babies and offer them up to Molech. The remains of the baby would then be placed in jars and placed in small cutouts in the walls of the city. And these are the walls that fell to the ground as God executed judgment on that city. Leviticus 18.21 tells us what God thinks about this. He says, you shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech. God was dead set against this practice. The Amalekites and the Canaanites continuously tried to wipe out Israel. Their brutality and cruelty and incest and bestiality and cultic prostitution, prostitution posed a threat to the existence of Israel. And if there was no remnant, if they had wiped Israel out, then it would have have prevented the Messiah from being born and God being able to rescue all of humanity from our sins. The same with Sodom and Gomorrah and other cities. These were not just acts of unjust violence by God. They were acts of judgment by a just God. Deuteronomy 9 verse 4 to 5, God says, Do not think in your heart. After the Lord your God has cast them out before you. Talking about these other nations. Saying because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out before you. And that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that was ultimately that through that nation God would bring the Messiah. Leviticus eighteen twenty-four to twenty-five: Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these things the nations that I'm driving out before you have become unclean, and the land before and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. These were not innocent or uniformly blameless nations. God, even in the judgment, does not take pleasure in this. Ezekiel 33, 11, God says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his evil way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, For why will you die, O house of Israel? God does not desire for anyone to perish, but that all would repent and come to salvation in Christ. So there's a misunderstanding about God's creation and and, and the people, the nations that he has judged. The second misunderstanding is around God's wisdom. In the Old Testament, we do see many, uh, many violent acts portrayed. Sometimes the Bible records these things that, people have done. But many times, like in the cases that we've just covered, like Jericho or the Amalekites or the harsh laws of the Old Testament, God is the one committing or at least ordering the violence. Again, without an eternal or complete perspective, we struggle to reconcile this with the idea of a loving God. But God knows why and how everything happens. With Israel specifically, God wanted to keep that remnant. A group of people completely committed to him. Through Israel, he was going to bring the Messiah. And any sin or sin attitude that developed within the nation had to be dealt with swiftly. Enemies had to be removed to protect God's ultimate plan. Otherwise, we could all have been lost. Deuteronomy 20 verse 16 shows us this. But of the cities of these people, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them. The Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the uh, Perizzite, the, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest, here's the reason, God's ultimate wisdom, they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. You see, God knows that what he was protecting ultimately was worth the actions of judgment he had to take in that moment. The difference. There's also a difference between recorded and condoned history. You have a true statement, and then you have a statement of truth. And the context can often be misunderstood. And that's where we need proper socio rhetorical criticism in order to understand this context. Because just because something was done doesn't mean that God is saying it's good that it happened. We also see uh, slavery often being mentioned, not race-based slavery. So this is different. The slavery we read about in the Old Testament and even in the New was not race-based as it was in modern times. The slavery in the old times was often an economical issue. Some people would even sell themselves into slavery if they did not have the money to pay their debts. But here's how God even deals with this this process in Deuteronomy 15 verse 12. Now this is going back thousands of years. He says, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, so you shall give. In other words, if this was an option today, hey, I might sell myself into slavery. Go and work for somebody for six years, seven years. In the seventh year, I leave as a wealthy person with all my debts paid. It looked different in the Old Testament. And even then, even when it came to the slaves, God mentions how these should be treated well. In the New Testament, Paul has revolutionary ideas on slavery where he begins to talk about a slave and a master both being subject to God and being able to love each other as brothers. And this is what paved the way for the Christians that abolished slavery slavery in our world. The third misunderstanding is God's character. The problem is that people don't know God. They don't know that he is just and loving and they want to fashion God in their own image. And so people often want grace for themselves and punishment for those that they feel deserve it. But God is more just than all of us. He's the only truly righteous and impartial judge. The Bible tells us that God is love. In Jeremiah 31, verse 3, it says, Then the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love, God said to him. Therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 5:8 says, God shows his love for us in this: that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4:19 says, We love God. Because he first loved us. You see, it's God's goodness that leads us to repentance. He's abundant in mercy, slow to anchor, patient and long-suffering, caring, forgiving and gracious. The very reason he sent Jesus to die for us was to save us from judgment. It's God's love and not those nails that held him To the cross so god is love but god is also holy psalm 99 verse 9 says exalt the lord our god and worship at his holy mountain for the lord our god is holy psalm 77 13 says your way O god is holy what god is great like our god 1 peter 1 16 says since it is written you shall be holy for i am holy that's the that's how god transforms us to look like him these two qualities that god is love and God is holy, are intimately connected. In fact, they are inseparable. The Bible says that we love the Lord with all of our heart. And then it says that our love for God, on that love that we have for Him, all the other laws, all the other actions that we take, hang on that love. In other words, love is the source of morality. It is the, it is the origin of of morality because when you love you will act in love and so if I love someone I'm not going to murder them I'm not going to steal from them I'm not going to harm them because I love and so love covers a multitude of sin and ultimately through love we are able to fulfill the law the Bible tells us that God does not desire for anyone to perish and so why is there a place called hell hell being A place of torment, uh, of of eternal torment. Well, hell is a place of judgment created for Satan and for his demonic hosts. God did not create hell with the intention of sending people there. It's not a place to torment people. And we don't have time today to discuss why some people choose God and and why some don't. But the point is, is that God doesn't send people to hell. He only allows them to take the path that they have chosen and the result of that path. It is our sin that sends us to hell. Why God, and this is why God sent Jesus to die for those sins so that we could choose not to go there. But if you choose not to put your faith in Jesus and instead want to be judged according to your own wrongs, then then that is a choice that we make even though God doesn't desire us for it. We are still liable for those individual sins. So this is not really, you know, escaping hell or receiving heaven is not about being a good person versus being a bad person. It's not good people that escape hell and receive heaven. It's forgiven people. It's people that put their faith in Jesus. And any of you watching this today can make that choice. If you put your faith in Christ, you have been saved from judgment, and that is what God desires for you. South Africa wasn't founded with jails, they didn't, the first thing they built wasn't a jail, it is something that was created, it was something that was built because crime required just judgment and justice, and it's the same thing when it comes to hell. Our world emphasizes sentimental love and tolerance as virtues and we forget about the virtues of holiness and godliness so the love that people think of when they say God is a God of love isn't even a true form of love our God is just and holy and loving and gracious and good he has judged your sin and my sin in the person of Jesus so that you need not be judged. That is the gospel. That is the good news. God did something about the situation to rescue all of us. However, if you prefer to pay for your own sins, then God will also allow you that. But I want to encourage every single person watching this today. Don't make that mistake. Don't rebel in pridefulness. Surrender to your creator that loves you, that is just and good, and allow him to rescue you through the sacrifice of Jesus. Why don't you go ahead and just pray with me today if you want to do that. Lord Jesus, I give my life to you. I receive your forgiveness. I receive your grace. I thank, you, I thank you, God, that every sin i had ever committed that would have led me to having to face judgment, you punished Jesus for in my, on my behalf. And as a result, I am set free from the power and the penalty of sin. And I receive a new life and heaven as my inheritance. Thank you, God, that I can love you because you loved me first. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. That's the good God that we serve. That's the good God you get to trust in today. I encourage you to share this message. Let's continue the conversation online in the comments. Email us, info at We'll talk more about this in the coming weeks. But we love you. We're praying for you. And we will see you next Sunday. God bless you, everyone.